if you look away for a moment and then look back quickly, you just might find me tapping on your walls. But like most men in my family, well, Buck ain't too smart and he's sort of funny looking. Well, one of the battles I had with my mother was over hair. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales from storytellers that have become favorites, not only to us, but we know to you as well. We love to introduce you to new tellers, of course, but we know you have old friends among the tellers that we bring to you here on the show. And we're kind of excited about this hour. It's kind of a tradition for us, actually, around this time of year to bring you an episode filled with stories told by some of the tellers who will be on stage at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. The Timpanogos Festival has uh, brought great storytelling to the tent and the concert hall and the classroom and more for more than 30 years. And, of course, they promote storytelling all over the country and all over the world. It's a wonderful event, biggest storytelling festival in the West. And the folks behind the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival, the Ashton Family Foundation, actually gave the Appleseed its start some years ago. So we have great affection for the festival and the folks behind it. And we want to bring you today some stories from some of the festival greats, some of those tellers who've been back again and again and again to the festival. You're going to hear from Geraldine Buckley. You'll hear from the comic storyteller Bill Lepp from West Virginia. The Monster Sticks Last Ride is the story that you're to hear from Bill, an old uh, story from his catalog of recorded performances. You're going to hear from Sheila Arnold, a story called Weeping Willow, kind of a, a fable of her own creation. You know, a lot of fables are ancient stories. This one is one that Sheila made up herself. And you're going to hear from Donald Davis. They call him the Dean of Storytelling. He's going to tell a story called The Duck tale. And we're happy to bring these stories to you today. We're going to start with a story from uh, Geraldine Buckley. Geraldine Buckley lives in Maryland. She's from the UK originally, and she tells a story called Tatton Hall that you're going to love here. Happy to bring it to you on the Appleseed. I have always loved to read. Always. And in fact, I learned very Young, I was three or four when I learned to read, and after that I inhaled everything I could get my hands on. First of all, it was fairy stories, and then it was folk tales, and then it was adventure stories. I read them over and over and over again. And in fact, I read them so much that sometimes I wasn't sure if something had happened to me or if I'd read about it. Well, when I was eight, my mother said, Geraldine, it's high time you got a library card. And she took me down to the library in the small town where we lived in the north of England. And it opened a whole different world. It was wonderful. I loved that card. It meant that I could bike down there. I could get armloads of books. I could put them in my basket in the front of my bicycle. I could bike all the way home. And I could read those books all afternoon all evening. And then when my mother came to tuck me in, I'd say goodnight. And as soon as she'd gone, I'd get out the flashlight and I'd read and I'd finish the story under the sheets. Well, my favorite when I was about eight was an author called Enid Blyton. And I really liked her adventure stories. And there was one series of adventures that I particularly liked that was called The Famous Five. 
And there were two boys, there were two girls, and there was a dog called Timmy. And I noticed some people nodding, so I'm so glad that you like the Famous Five too. Well, they always wanted quiet holidays, but they always managed to stumble into adventures. And those adventures seemed to involve ancient houses and, and hidden caves and secret passages. And then I discovered this transatlantic heroine, and she understood the importance of a good secret passage. Nancy Drew. She of the Titian hair, the blue sports car, and the insatiable curiosity. She knew that if you found a secret passage, then all sorts of mysteries could be solved. And I wanted to find a secret passage. Now, I read in the library, in the junior encyclopedia, that in England, that secret passages were built in Tudor times and Elizabethan times. But that didn't stop me. I went over every inch of our 1950s house, knocking on every wall and knocking on the floorboards, just hoping that perhaps I would find a secret passage that someone had overlooked. But it never happened. So I was thrilled when our form teacher, who was called Miss Lemming, announced that the class was going on a field trip to an old, old house, Tatton Hall. <gasps> yes! Oh, I was so excited. Well, when the day came, Miss Lemming was in a bad mood. Now, I have to tell you, Miss Lemming was really a very nice woman. She was a good teacher. She liked the girls. She would say, girls, you must have the courage of your convictions. And when you've got a girl, go for it. And she liked Shakespeare. And she'd quote from Henry V. She'd go, once more onto the breach, dear friends, once more. Or roll the wall up with your English dead. Or something like that, she went on. Anyway, that day, she was in a really bad temper. Now, I have to tell you, this was a convent day school, but she was one of the lay teachers. And that day, she was saying, girls, there is going to be such trouble if any of you gets out of line. Reverend Mother has said that this class will not let the school down. And so if you do, there will be serious consequences. Well, Mary, my friend, looked at me and she said, what's got into Miss Lemming? We're going to have to change her name if she carries on like that. I think we'll have to call her Miss Lemon. <laughs> well, we weren't going to let Miss Lemon dampen our enthusiasm for Tatton Hall. And when I got into the library of the place, I couldn't believe my eyes. There were books upon books. There were bookshelves from floor to ceiling on all walls. I read afterwards there were 10,000 books in that library. And with everything in me, I wanted to touch them, but I couldn't because there was a barrier between the public and the exhibit. But I knew if I could touch the spines of those books, then all that knowledge would just suck into me by osmosis. <laughs> and I knew that if I could just touch one of the bookshelves, that I'd find a secret spring and the whole front would come open and there behind it would be a hidden room and off the hidden room there'd be a secret passage. I, I just knew it. I don't know who has to dust those books, but that's not a very good job. That was our Miss Lemon. And she shoved us out of the room, up to the next floor, into the Lemon bedroom. That's what it was called. And my friend Mary said, you see, Geraldine, they knew Miss Lemon was coming. That's why they named this room that. <laughs> but in the, in the middle of that room, there was this huge four-poster bed. Now, I'd read about four-poster beds, but I'd never seen one. And this was huge. And it must have had about seven mattresses on it. Well, as soon as I saw it, I knew that this was the bed that the princess of the princess and the pea had slept in. I knew it. And I knew that under the bottom mattress had been a pea, and because of that, she had been uncomfortable all night. I just knew it. I wonder who's got to make those beds. That's not a very nice job. And imagine turning those mattresses 
It was our Miss Lennon. Well, she took us up to another floor by a different staircase. It was a servant's staircase, and this was a servant's quarters. And we saw a small room. Oh, and I couldn't believe it when I walked in that room because there was only two pieces of furniture. There was a chair and there was a spindle. Well, I knew that that was a spindle, that on her 18th birthday, Sleeping Beauty had gone up and she had pricked her finger and the whole of the hall had gone into a hundred years sleep. Yes, yes. And it had stayed that way until the handsome prince had fought his way through the undergrowth and he'd found Sleeping Beauty and he'd awakened her with true love's kiss. I knew it. Not very nice servants' quarters, are they? There was our Miss Lemon off again. And then she took us to another part of Tatton Hall, which was a medieval part, and that was lovely. But the thing I really liked was there was a cottage right outside the old part. And there was about eight girls who came in this cottage, and the others divided up, and they went other places. And in that little cottage, there was a main room. And in the main room, there was a fireplace, there was a rug on the floor, and there was a table and some chairs, and there was a china cabinet. But over the fireplace was a plaque, and on the plaque it said, beneath this rug, in front of the fireplace, there is a secret passage that runs from here to the church. It was built after the reformation of the monasteries to help save priests' lives. <gasps> I read it again. There's a secret passage, a secret passage. Girls, I said. There's a secret passage here in this room. And I looked round to see where Miss Lemming was. Well, she wasn't anywhere around. And nor was the docent who'd been sitting in the, the foyer. Well, they must have gone off together to find the little teachers and little docent's room. We were all by ourselves. So I said to the girls, girls, look, there's a secret passage. Come on, help me. Let's find it. Well, Mary went all peculiar on me. She said, well, I don't know, Geraldine. I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's under the rug, isn't it? It's hidden. Maybe we're not meant to find it. And I said, oh, Mary, of course it's hidden. It's secret. <laughs> of course. But the sign says that it's there. That means it's like a clue. We found it, so we've got to get at it. Well, then Daphne went funny on me as well. She said, well, Geraldine, remember, Reverend Mother said that we had to behave ourselves, and Miss Lemming was really, really emphatic about that. I said, no, but Miss Lemming would want us to do it. She'd want it. You know what she'd say? She'd say, girls, have the courage of your convictions. If you've got a dream, go for it. <laughs> That's what she'd say. And then she'd say, she'd quote that Shakespeare thing. She'd say, once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more, come and roll that carpet up. That's what she'd say. <laughs> So the girls helped me. We got the table off the mat, and then we got the chairs, and then I looked at the china cabinet. Well, there was just a whole load of plates and cups and saucers and things in there, and there was a plaque on it that said that these were Wedgwood, Minton, Spode. Oh, just a whole load of old china. So I got, I got two girls on one side, two on the other. I was on the front, and I got Daphne on the back, and I said, come on, okay, we can do this. And we lifted this up, and we moved it off the mat, and we plonked it down. It was fine. And we rolled everything up, and there, under that mat, there was a trap door. And in the middle of the trap door, there was a brass ring. Oh, I went over and I, I pulled it. Paul, oh, oh, it just moved a tiny bit. I, I, I knew I needed some help, so I said, Mary, come on, get your arms around me. Come on, get your arms around me. And so we pulled together. Paul, 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 and it moved. It just moved a bit. I said, Daphne, we need some more help. Get your arms around Mary. So it was me, and then there was Mary, and there was Daphne, and we were all holding on to each other, and we were all pulling. Paul, and it was moving a bit. Paul, and moving a bit more. Paul, girls, what do you think you're doing? <gasps> it was Miss Lemon. 
Who's responsible for this? It's me. Come over here, Geraldine. Explain yourself. I said, well, well, you see, Miss Lemon. Uh, Miss Lemming, Miss Lemming, Miss Lemming. The thing is that it says above the fireplace that there's a secret passage. And so because it said it, I thought we were meant to find it. Geraldine, she said, you have acted like a hooligan. And if you carry on this way, you will end up in prison. (laughs) Now, I don't for a moment suppose that on that particular day, Miss Lemming thought I'd end up being the chaplain in the prison. (laughs) But she didn't manage to squash my sense of adventure. So I want to warn all of you. If any of you invite me to your homes, and if you look away for a moment and then look back quickly, you just might find me tapping on your walls and looking under your rugs because you never know when you'll stumble into adventure. Tatton Hall, a story told for you by Geraldine Buckley. Geraldine is an old friend of the show. Way back in 2013, when we started broadcasting The Appleseed, Geraldine visited us in the studio for one of our very first storyteller conversations, the first of many. We've got a fondness for her, and of course, for the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival coming up and filled with uh, the tellers that you're hearing on today's episode of The Appleseed and a whole lot more. The Timpanogos Festival brings favorites and newcomers alike to the festival just about every year. And uh, you can find more about the festival at timpfest.org. It's kind of a tradition for us around festival time to bring an episode like this to the air filled with some of those festival tellers. Lots more coming up. You're going to hear from Bill Lepp, from Sheila Arnold, from Donald Davis, and a conversation with our friend Andy Offit Irwin in just a moment here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. Kind of a tradition for us, as we mentioned before, to around this time of year bring you an episode of the show filled with stories told for you by tellers who are featured at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. If you want to find out more about that festival, you can visit timpfest.org, largest storytelling festival in the West for more than 30 years now, bringing great storytelling to the festival tent and the concert hall and the classroom and uh, if you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a story from Geraldine Buckley, a story called Tatton Hall. Uh, Geraldine has uh, worked uh, doing a lot of things. She was the chaplain of the largest men's prison in Maryland for a while, and a lot of her stories come from that time in her life. Of course, we love to hear her stories about just about everything. That story, Tatton Hall, was a delight to bring you. We're going to bring you now a conversation with Andy Offit Irwin, who stopped by the Appleseed Studio to make some recordings that you're going to hear on the show uh, in other episodes of the Appleseed, but he'll be at the festival this year, and Andy Offit Irwin is today's conversation with a friend. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, the books that we treasure, the meals that we share, the songs that we remember, and certainly through the tales that we tell, from teller to listener passed down, sometimes over generations and generations. And talking about how some of those stories get down into our hearts and minds and 
The shape they take when they're there is something that we love to do with friends here on the Appleseed, and I can't tell you how pleased I am to be joined right here in the studio by our old friend Andy Offutt Irwin. Andy is out on tour. He's touring all over the place, uh, from Texas to Idaho to Colorado to New Mexico, and of course, here to the Appleseed Studio. We're just thrilled to have him. And uh, life on the road. It's been a minute since uh, since there was life on the road. Oh, man, don't you know? And you know I'm a, I'm a natural vagabond. I am fascinated, it's truly, truly true, that my uh, 2012 RAV4 Toyota you yeah. know, can can leave my driveway, and that driveway is connected to Little Brookwood Circle, connected to Legion Drive, da, 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 connected to here. Yeah, that fascinates me. Yeah, and I have I have the road in my blood. I really, really do. Um, my my grandfather was a road contractor, um. and he built uh, the road over Blood Mountain in North Georgia, in the mountains mm. of North Georgia. Now you wouldn't call them mountains, but they're just old and worn down, like old people's teeth. <laughs> and he built that in 1923. And he started uh, in the spring, and it went through the summer. And my mama was born in April of 1923, so he took his family. And my grandmother reported that they lived in a literal tar shack tent. Hmm. That and and they used mule teams to to bring the equipment over the mountain. Yeah. And uh, he he met the local people, and some of the local people were making things that yeah. other people shouldn't make. And and he said he wouldn't tell the revenuers if. If those people didn't sell to his men and they shook hands, and that was a gentleman's agreement, it stayed that huh. way. She's a really isolated mountain people. And he built those roads, and one of them went down from Blood Mountain into the town of Blairsville. Well, it went right by the farm of Byron Herbert Reese, hmm. uh, the poet from North Georgia, hmm. who was actually introduced to me by Kevin Kling. Huh. I knew who he was, but I hadn't read him. And in his road, in his book, Jericho Road, he wrote, a poem that sort of breaks my heart. I understand this poem because this mountain man who is a literary, uh, a really, really brilliant writer, ended up the um, poet in residence at UCLA. Hmm. And it broke his heart. He, he hated it there. And it's very similar to my experience when I worked for the happiest place on earth, registered trademark, <laughs> selling out to the mouse in Orlando. And the poem he wrote, I, I like to think of my uncle, who is the same age as Byron Herbert Reese, meeting him and maybe playing with him in yeah. those woods. Um, but the Rhodes poem is a pace or two beyond my door or highways racing east and west. I hear their busy traffic roar, fleet tourists bound on far behests and monstrous mastodons of freight passing in droves before my gate. The roads would tow me far away to cities whose extended pull they have no choice but to convey. I named them great and wonderful and marvels of device and speed, but all unsuited to my need. My heart is native to the sky, where hills that are its only wall rise up to, to draw the boundaries by, but where from roofs of iron fall sheer perpendiculars of steel on streets that bruise the country heel. My heart's contracted to a stone. Therefore, whatever roads repair to cities on the plain, my own rise upward to the peaks, and there I feel, pulling my ribs apart, the wide sky entering my heart. Hmm. So I think of my love for roads, yeah. and on this trip, the beauty is 
I get to meet you. I could see you. Yeah. I get to hang out with friends. <laughs> but then, man, I am so attached to where I live. Yeah. I get to go home. Yeah. And Reese eventually came home. Yeah. Um, and my granddaddy built that road and, and brought education and opportunity to those people. Yeah. And uh, I, I just, I'm fascinated by roads. You know, this notion that as we began talking about this, you talked about the 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 road outside your door being mm-hmm. connected to the road being connected to the road being connected to the road that runs outside my door right, right. yeah and this this notion that, that that's a, that's a powerful image of connection and that you'll be here and invest whatever you're going to invest here but then ultimately you're going to you're going to follow that same series of connections back to your own front door absolutely yeah, yeah. that that's Perfectly put. Yeah, I, 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 and I know you well enough to know that uh, that that it's not just the 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 destinations that punctuate the road. Oh. You know, that it's the it's 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 being out there on the road itself. It, it is. Uh, I I was telling you I, I crossed. Um, uh, I had to leave Farmington. I had to in, uh, end up in Ridgeway, Colorado. I did want to go to Four Corners. Yeah, which which is a funny wonder because everybody wants to. You know, it's it's like. It's not a natural wonder. It's yeah. a it's a miracle of, we made. of yeah. topography. <laughs> That's right. Let's go, yeah. and we're all. But we you know we you know we're all nerds, and we stand in the four states, and yeah. And, and it's good to see what the Navajo. Pe- it's so cool that the Navajo people run it. Yeah, right. <laughs> it just yeah. makes me happy. <laughs> and sure, and um, so I'm. You're even more in the Navajo Nation there than you really are in all those other states. Right. Yeah. Um, but then I crossed the San Juan Mountains, and as gorgeous a. Uh, thoroughfares I've ever seen. And somebody told me it was the million dollar road because it cost a million dollars to build, which is <laughs> astounding. <Yes. laughs> it's like back when that meant something. Right. Um, but it is, it's um, just beautiful. And there are these pull-offs and you just go, there's the natural wonder. There yeah. it is. And then your job always is, I say this to children, every time I work with children especially, is to savor. Yeah. I savor it. I pray. Hold my arms out and savor it. Now, I always tell kids, if you can learn to savor when you're a kid, you'll know how to savor when you're a grown-up. And if you know how to savor when you're a grown-up, the more childlike your adulthood will be. Yeah. Wise words from Andy Offutt. Irwin, as he has talked about the road, maybe you've thought of moments you've spent on the road, trips you've taken, things that you've seen. And it's a pleasure to chat with our friend Andy Offutt. Irwin. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, and there's a lot more coming up, including this story from Bill Lepp, a great pal of Andy's, actually. Bill Lepp, the great tall tale teller from West Virginia, who has thrilled audiences all over the country for many, many years. This is actually an early recording of Bill's. It's called The Monster Sticks Last Ride, and you're going to enjoy it here on The Appleseed. Monster Sticks Last Ride. My brother Paul passed away in 1998, but many of the times he stood on the stage of the Liars Contest and bedazzled us all with stories of the Monster Stick. Now, the Monster Stick was Paul's nine foot surf casting rod, complete with six miles of brand new 50 pound test strand carp cord. It was the castingest outfit he ever did own, and he never let anyone else use it, mainly because the Monster Stick was a dangerous thing in the hands of an amateur largely because it was such a bear to cast. 
Casting the monster stick involved a two-handed, full-body twist that was a cross between an Olympic hammer throw and a ballet pirouette. Casting from shore presented a myriad of problems, and casting from any vessel smaller than an aircraft carrier almost always resulted in the boat being capsized. Strange things just happened again and again whenever the monster stick reared its head. It was sort of the Pandora's box of fishing equipment. Take the time my grandfather was bringing the monster stick to this country. He cast off the deck of a huge cruise liner, snagged what he thought was a whale, and only realized he was mistaken when he'd brought the thing alongside the ship and the guy in the crow's nest hollered, Iceberg! Needless to say, I never went near the monster stick. I never touched it at all, but after my brother died, I was out in my garden doing a little plowing when I heard a voice behind me that said, If you bait it, catfish will come. Well, I looked around and I didn't see anybody, but then I heard the voice again. If you bait it, catfish will come. Well, I could tell from the slow West Virginia drawl that voice that it could only belong to one of two people. It either had to be God speaking to me or my brother Paul. But either way, the revelation was clear. The monster stick needed one last fling, and I was going to have to be the man to do it. So I snuck into my sister-in-law's house. I took the monster stick down from its place of honor. I bought myself an eight-foot bass boat and a five-gallon bucket of raw beef livers, and I set sail on the mighty waters of the Buckhannon River. Now, everything was going fine, and I think everything would have gone fine that day if I hadn't made but one mistake. You'd see, I decided it would be a good idea to bring my dog Buck along in that boat with me, and most of you know Buck is my super dog whose mother was a German shepherd and whose daddy was a prolific and extremely determined basset hound. But like most men in my family, well, Buck ain't too smart and he's sort of funny looking. In fact, when God was passing out brains, Buck thought he said drains, and so he asked for one that emptied quickly. On the other hand, when God was passing out noses, Buck thought he said roses, and so he asked for one that smelled real good. Just to give you an indication of how good that dog could smell, you remember that fairy tale about the princess that sleeps on the 23 mattresses and she finds the one with the pee on it? Well, that's nothing. I guarantee you that even if you had 23,000 mattresses, it would take Buck less than a minute to find the one with the princess's pee on it. Well, anyway, I was getting ready to fish, so I took one whole beef liver and I threw it to Buck Dog to keep him quiet while I was fishing. He was a little bit jealous that I was going to give all that liver away to the fish. And then I put another liver on the hook of the monster stick. I closed my eyes and I went into that full body twist cast. Well, as I went around, I put all my weight on my right foot, which caused the boat to list in that direction. And that pushed all the water on the right side of the river up against the right bank. Well, then I put all my weight on my left foot, which pushed all the water on that side of the river against the left bank. And that bass boat plopped down onto the muddy bottom of the Buckhannon River. Well, when I opened my eyes and felt the power of that rod in my hand and saw those two walls of water on either side of me, well, I knew just what Moses must have felt like at the Red Sea. When I looked again and saw those two walls of water coming back at me, well, I knew just what Pharaoh and his armies must have felt like at the Red Sea. But before that water hit, I happened to notice a couple of things. For one thing, the line on the monster stick was still rocketing down river straight and true. For another thing, there was a strange-looking blob on the end of the line, and the last thing I noticed was that Buck Dog was no longer in the boat with me. As near as I can figure, he was jealous that I was going to give that liver away, and so just as I had cast, he had sprung for the bait, 
and had managed to get his collar snagged on the hook. I had just cast my dog away worse than the Swiss family Robinson, and I knew when he hit the water he was either going to drown or be swallowed up by a giant catfish, and either way I didn't want to have to explain that to my wife. I knew if I was going to save my dog I was going to have to work fast, but just then those two walls of water crashed down and drove that bass boat about 18 inches into the muddy bottom of the Buckhannon River. Well, I was stuck pretty good. I pulled on my legs and tried to get them out, but nothing was working. So then I reached in my pocket, and I pulled out my stainless steel 74-function Swiss Army-type knife, and I quickly opened up the scuba gear and the flippers. That's the Jacques Cousteau special. I had to pay ten extra bucks for that. I put all that gear on, pulled myself up out of the mud, grabbed that bucket of raw beef livers and the monster stick, and I started swimming toward shore. Well, I made it to shore just as Buck Dog started his downward arch, and as most of you know, right there alongside the Buckhannon River flows that fine and famed run of Weirton's world-famous steel fashioned into CSNX railroad tracks running clear from Cowan to Grafton via Burnsville, Buckhannon, Carrollton, and Philippi. And it just so happened that just then, at that very moment, a six-engine, 168-car CSNX monster train, loaded down with 19,364 tons of pure West Virginia bituminous coal, was rolling by. Well, I managed to get up to those tracks just as Buck Dog hit the water. I took the monster stick and jammed it into the rungs on the ladder of the last coal car on that train, monster stick, meet monster train, and then I jumped aboard. Now, for various physical and scientific reasons that I really don't have time to go into here, the momentum of that train going in the opposite direction of that cast provided sufficient force to pull Buck Dog up out of the water. He got his feet under him. He was kind of cruising across the surface like a giant water bug, even started to enjoy it. He picked up his front feet, did a couple of rooster tails, flipped over some fallen logs, and all the while I was just reeling him in. When I got him about ten feet off the shore from me, I just kind of flipped my wrists and popped him up out of the water. And honest to gosh, I think everything would have gone fine from that moment on if a catfish the size of a Buick hadn't chosen that moment to spring for the bait. He swallowed up Buck's hind end, but with his front end, Buck was still running as hard as he could to get away. And when I flipped my wrists, I flipped Buck Dog and that catfish up behind the train where they plopped down on the tracks. Now that catfish was wide enough that he straddled those tracks, and he was sliding behind that train like a flatboat on the Erie Canal, with Buck's front end just running as hard as he could, and I was pulling as hard as I could on Buck's collar trying to pull him out of that catfish's mouth, but nothing was working. And then I had an idea. I reached into that bucket of raw beef livers, and I threw one at that catfish, figuring that when it got within range, that catfish would open his mouth to swallow that liver, and I could just pull Buck out. Well, that liver got within range, and Buck Dog jumped up and swallowed it whole. I said, bad dog, bad dog, and I threw another liver. Well, Buck Dog swallowed that one and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, until my five-gallon bucket was empty and my five-gallon buck dog was full. Well, I was at my wit's end then. I didn't know what I was going to do, but fortunately, buck dog is not without means of his own. You see, all that fear, all that adrenaline, and all that liver started to react, and, well, to put it politely, buck dog's gastrointestinal El Nino went into hyperdrive. And he released enough methane into that catfish to put Columbia Gas out of business. 
That catfish started to swell up like the Hindenburg and lift up off the tracks with Buck Dog still in his mouth. I had to play out line as quick as I could to keep it from breaking, and pretty soon I had all six miles of that line, Buck Dog and that catfish following that train like a kite. Well, now, every time we'd go around the curve, it would whip that catfish out and put a lot of stress on that line. We went around a particularly sharp curve, and it whipped that catfish out so hard, and there was so much stress on that line that when the line hit a mountain about 50 feet from the top, it just cut right through that mountain like a hot knife through butter. And the pressure was so great that that mountaintop kind of jumped up and then slammed back down. Well, I started to feel good again then. Because if nothing else had gone right for me the whole day, at least I had just completed the first and only successful mountaintop removal and reclamation operation. But then I looked over my shoulder, and here comes that old tunnel again, and I started reeling just as quick as I could, and I had that catfish and buck dog right behind that train when we hit that tunnel. Well, that catfish was so big that only his lips would fit in the front of that tunnel, so his lips were sticking in with buck dog sticking out, and I was pulling on the monster stick as hard as I could, but it was a classic immovable object against an unstoppable force, and the line on the monster stick was pulled so tight that it was singing. And just when critical mass was about to hit, Buck Dog shot out of that catfish's mouth like a cork a champagne bottle. That catfish backed out of that tunnel and flapped around the sky like a deflating balloon until he dove back into the river. Well, I picked up the monster stick, Buck Dog, and that empty bucket of raw beef livers, and I headed home. Where I put the monster stick back in its place of honor in my sister-in-law's house, where hopefully Paul and the monster stick can rest in peace. <laughs> Bill Lepp with the Monster Sticks Last Ride, an early recording from Bill here on the Apple Seed. You can always trust Bill Lepp to take you on a journey that starts out pretty normal and then winds up in some outlandish situation. And you never even can remember exactly where it all went off the rails. It's our pleasure today to be bringing you uh, stories from storytellers who will be featured at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. You're going to hear from Sheila Arnold in just a moment and from Donald Davis as well. I'm Sam Payne, and that's all coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. Up next, we've got a story from Sheila Arnold. It's a story called Weeping Willow. Have you ever felt that life was unfair? Maybe you've never been as naturally smart as the people around you, or maybe you've wished that you were faster or more athletic. Maybe you were sure you couldn't be happy until you had the newest, trendiest outfit. Well, that's how the Weeping Willow feels in this story, because her leaves don't change color. The story is told for you by Sheila Arnold. Happy to bring it to you on The Appleseed. Long, long ago, long before there were dinosaurs, long before there were people, long before there were cars and convenience stores, there were the trees. And the trees were always green. The trees were always green and they were always happy. They were green, they were happy, all of them, except the weeping willow. Oh, me, oh, 
My, how I wish I could turn colors. I'd be red like a cardinal or orange like a, like a, like an orange, or I'd be yellow like the sun and brown like the ground. Oh, me, oh, my. The weeping willow took his request to the angel of the trees, and the angel of the trees took the request to God. He knocked on God's door, and God answered, I'm open. The angel went in. It's me, the angel of the trees. I know that, said God. What's up? It's the weeping willow. Again? Isn't this the same weeping willow who used to be a little bitty tree, but he wanted to be big and I gave that to him? That would be the one. And God asked again, Isn't this the same weeping willow who used to have his branches sticking straight out, but he wanted them curved down? That would be the one. So what does he want now? He wants his leaves to turn colors. Turn colors? Tell him no. The angel of the trees came down from the heavenly heights and told the weeping willow, No. Oh, me, oh, my, said the weeping willow. Oh, I wish I could turn colors. I'd be red like a rose and orange like a, like a, like a orange. And I'd be yellow like a daffodil and brown like a lion's fur. Oh, me, oh, my. And the weeping willow whined and cried and cried and whined until finally Mr. Oak had had it. I've had it. I'm tired of your whining and crying, and me and some of my friends are going to the other side of the land. So Mr. Oak and his friends left for the other side of the land. Oh, me! Oh, my! I'm going to miss Mr. Oak and his friends, but I'd be happy if I could turn colors! So the weeping willow whined and cried and cried and whined, moaned and groaned, groaned and moaned until Miss Sycamore had had it. I've had it. I'm tired of all your whining and crying, your moaning and groaning, and me and some of my friends are going to the other side of the land. So Miss Sycamore and her friends left for the other side of the land. Oh, me, oh, my, cried the weeping willow. I'm going to miss Miss Sycamore and her friends, but I would be happy if I could turn colors. And the weeping willow whined and cried and cried and whined, groaned and moaned and moaned and groaned and complained, 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 until all the trees left for the other side of the land. Then the shrubs left. Then the bushes left, then the flowers left, then the grass left, and the dirt was just about to get up and go when the angel of the trees took the requests back to God. He knocked on God's door and God answered, I'm open. The angel went in, it's me, angel of the trees. I know that, said God. What's up? It's the weeping willow. Oh. What is it now? He still wants to turn colors. What colors does he want to be? Purple? Silver? Gold? Oh, no, sir. He wants to turn red, orange, yellow, and brown. Well, God thought, hmm. And God thought, hmm. And God thought, hmm. And finally, God said, yes. Well, the angel of the trees zoomed down from the heavenly heights and told the weeping willow, 
Yes. And the weeping willow was so happy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The weeping willow was so excited. He almost didn't get any sleep. But he finally fell off. The next morning came. And the weeping willow woke and saw his leaves had turned red. I'm red. Look at me. I'm red. I look like a robin redbreast. I look like an apple. I look like a cardinal. I'm red. I'm red. I'm red. I'm red. Of course, he didn't have anyone to talk to except the dirt, but he was pretty happy about it. Then a little later, in the middle of the dancing, he felt a tingle and... I'm orange. I'm orange. I look like a big fat, hmm, orange. <laughs> uh, yeah, I could never think of anything orange. <laughs> but I'm orange. I'm orange. I'm orange. I'm orange. I'm orange. As he was celebrating and feeling so good about his red and his orange, a time later, he felt a tingle and he turned yellow. Do you like my yellow? Do you see my yellow? I'm like a daisy, like a sunflower, like a tulip. See me glow, 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 mmm, yellow. I feel pretty, I feel pretty, so pretty in yellow I'll be. I'm yellow. He really liked yellow. Well, he knew if he had all the other colors, the next was surely to come. And soon it did. Dingo! Brown! See my brown? Then he looked at the ground. Brown, ground, ground, brown, brown, ground, ground, brown. Oh, we're less alike. Brown, I'm brown, I'm brown, I'm brown. The weeping willow was so excited because he knew what would happen next. He knew that he would turn green and then turn all the colors, red, orange, yellow, and brown, again and again and again. But that's not what happened. You see... The thing the weeping willow wanted most in all the world was a thing that would cause him to become very sick and he would begin to die. But Mr. Oak, Miss Sycamore, and all the other trees in the other land, they saw what was happening and they sent a letter to the angel of the trees who took the letter to God. And this is what the letter said. We know the weeping willow whined and cried and moaned and groaned and complained, complained, complained. And he's probably getting what he deserves, but he is our friend. Yes, and as our friend, we do not wish for him to die alone. We will turn colors with him and die as well. Well, God was so blown away by their request that he granted it. That's why each fall we see the leaves turn red and orange and yellow and brown. But God promised that every spring the trees would come back to life and be green again. Oh, and that weeping willow? He never whined. He never cried. He never moaned, groaned, or complained again because he had the best gift of all. He had Friends. Shh. 
Sheila Arnold with a story called Weeping Willow. On today's episode of The Appleseed, we're featuring some of the storytellers that will themselves be featured this year at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival, one of the largest storytelling events in the country. We're always happy when it comes time for the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. We're going to wrap up with a festival favorite. This is Donald Davis. They call him the Dean of Storytelling. This is a story called The Ducktail. Has your local community ever had a troublesome kid that the parents warned you about but that you secretly admired something about? Well, that's uh, who Miles was in Donald Davis's hometown. Miles owns a guitar and has black hair like Elvis Presley. And, well, that's just the beginning of the story. Here's Donald Davis with The Ducktail on the Appleseed. Uh, my mother was a second grade teacher at school, and of course, also, she got called on to teach Sunday school at church. That's just a natural thing. And then there was one little boy that she taught both in school and in Sunday school that she did not want me to play with. Uh-huh. Some of you got one like that, right? Yeah. She said, I do not want you playing with Miles Chafin. I said, why not? And her answer was, because I taught him in Sunday school. Huh? I thought, well, you should have taught him more, I guess. <laughs> Miles Chapin was a little boy who lived with his grandparents. He had no parents. We did not understand. We never heard what the story was. All we knew was he's unfortunate. And my mother didn't want me to play with him. Miles Chapin's grandparents gave him everything he could even think of asking for and some things he hadn't thought of next. And when he was in about the third grade, he was the first person I ever knew my age who had his own guitar. Not only did he have his own guitar, he thought he was Hank Williams. And every time there was a little show at school, you know, a little talent show, a little program, here Miles would come with his guitar. And he would sing things like, hey, good looking, what you got cooking? And by then he was staring at the mothers in an unacceptable way. How's about cooking something up with me? My mother say, stay away from that boy. Stay away from him. Well, the older we got, the worse he got. And when we got to the seventh grade, he had a conversion experience. He was converted from Hank Williams to Elvis Presley. And oh, it was bad then. My mother says, don't even look at him. Do not even look at him. He dyed his hair black. And it was enormously full and long. It went swarping up in the front. And it went swooping back on the sides. And my mother said, the back end looks like a duck's tail. <laughs> well, one of the battles I had with my mother was over hair. Ever heard of that one? She thought I needed a haircut every other day. And I thought about once between every other birthday was about right. 
I was in the seventh grade, 13 years old. And one day my mother came to pick me up at school and I got in the car and she looked at me and she said, you're looking like a sheepdog. I thought, that's good. She said, I need to take you up to Herschel Caldwell's barbershop and get your hair cut. I had never in my life, in 13 years, I had never been to get a haircut alone. My mother always marched me in there because you have to march if you're going somewhere you don't want to go. You don't get to walk, you march. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would get up in the chair and she would look at Herschel with whom she had grown up. And he would say, how do you want it cut today, Lucille? He never even spoke to me. He knew better. And she would say, really short all over. Get it shorter than the last time. <laughs> well, that day when she looked at me and she said, you look like a sheepdog. I need you to take you up to Herschel's to get your hair cut. But I don't have time today because I need to go to the grocery store. I got an idea. I said, Mama, I'm 13 years old, and I know the way to the barbershop. And I know the way home from there. So why don't you just give me a dollar and 60 cents, and you can go on to the grocery store, and I'll go get my hair cut, and then I'll just walk home and meet you at home. And she fumbled for a moment, and then she said, Well, I guess that would be all right. And she gave me the money, and she let me out at the barbershop, and she headed toward the Winn-Dixie store. Well, I walked in Herschel's barbershop. It was a most interesting place. There was a long row of chairs, about six barbers in there. Each one had a little chair, had their name up above it, and, 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 and it, the walls were covered with mirrors halfway up. You know, you could look back and forth and see yourself like a thousand times till you disappeared, you know. And there were two big signs in there. One of them said, no spitting. And one said, no profanity. The place smelled wonderful. It smelled like that, you know, aftershave they would put on men after they got a shave. Well, I waited my turn, and then Herschel looked at me, and he says, little Davis, it's your turn. Come on up here. And I got up there, 13 years old. He still acted like he was going to get the little board for me to sit on. And then he put it back down, kind of giggled and laughed. And then I got up in the chair and he put, put the thing on me and he says, well, where's your mama? I said, she's at the grocery store. He said, this is the first time you've ever been here without your mama. I grew up with her. I guess we've known each other just about since we were born. Well, I don't know how to cut your hair today since your mama's not here. I said, I am 13 years old. I guess I can tell you how I want my hair cut. And he laughed. <laughs> and he said, well, go ahead and tell me. And I said, well, do you know Miles Chafin? <laughs> he laughed again. <laughs> he said, of course I do. Everybody does. I said, I'd like my hair cut just like his. I don't want it dyed black. I'm just going to keep my color. But I'd like my hair cut like his because I think it looks great. He laughed again. <laughs> and he did not cut one little snip of hair off of my head. I think he tried to pick some up off the floor to add to it. 
But he put this butch waxy stuff on it. Then he heated up a metal comb, and he'd lift it way up in the front and pull it back and just let it fall. Then lift it way up and let it fall. And then swoop back the sides and swoop back the sides. He did shave it straight off a little bit across the back. And ooh, in a little while, when I got down out of the chair, I held out the money, and he said, It's on me. And I started walking home. Well, I knew everybody and every car in town. But somehow I was scared to look up and make eye contact when anybody came past. I just didn't want to see the look on their face. And I got home and walked in the house, walked up behind my mother. That was a bad mistake. And when she turned around, she thought a robber had come in. She just squalled, oh! And when she realized who it was, ooh, was she mad, but not at me. She said, I have known Herschel Caldwell since we were born, and he should know that Lucille Davis would never let one of her children appear like this. Get in the car. <laughs> and we went out and got in the car, and we headed back to the barbershop. And when we got there, phew, they were closed. My mama stepped on the gas, and we were not going home. I didn't know where we were going. We were going to Herschel's house. <laughs> and we went in the driveway and went right down the driveway, and she did not even go to the front door the way proper company ought to go. She went straight to the back door and did not even knock. <laughs> we just went in. <laughs> And Herschel and his wife were eating at the table, and his wife got up and backed up in the corner and was just shaking. <laughs> and my mama came over at Herschel, and she pulled a loaded finger on him. <laughs> and she just said, fix it. <clears throat> and he didn't need to ask any questions. <laughs> He took me over to the kitchen sink and he got this auto degreaser out of the garage and started washing that wax out of my head with it and washed it and washed it and washed it. Finally got all of it out and he got a little set of clippers and he didn't even ask my mama how she wanted it cut. He took it right down to the bone. And I thought we were finished till she turned to him and she said, give him his money back. <laughs> and I looked up at Herschel and he looked at me. And the two of us were the only people in the world who could have read the little grin on the other one's face. <laughs> Without saying a single word, he reached in his pocket and he gave me a dollar and sixty cents. <laughs> and then he said to my mama, he said, next time he needs it cut, I'll cut it free then too. <laughs>
Well, my mother never again went to the barbershop with me. Herschel never again even asked how to cut it. <laughs> it was just a done deal. But I do remember one day, he's looking down at me, and he, he said, Remember Miles Chafin? I said, Yeah. He said, I believe in all the years I've been a barber, that's about the most enjoyable haircut I've ever given anybody. <laughs> Thank you so much. So long. See you later. Thank you. Donald Davis with the ducktail here on the Appleseed. It's been a pleasure for us today to bring you stories by tellers who will be featured uh, this year at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. <laughs>